This is an audio recording of Al Capone Does My Shirts by Jennifer Trolenko for educational purposes and to be used by students at Sydenham School, Lewisham. Chapter 6 Chapter 6 Sucker Same Day Sunday, January 6th, 1935. I'm walking by the cell house now, row after row of dark, barred windows, all spooky quiet. What goes on in there? I know the convicts aren't allowed to talk, but how could some 300 men not make more sound? Just breathing makes noise, you know? And all those windows, the cons don't sit around watching us, do they? Across the road from the cell house is a fancy mansion with flower pots on the steps and curtains in the windows. The only thing missing from the house is a lawn and a tree. That's the only tip. This is Alcatraz. There's nothing but cement clear up to the door. Even so, it's strange how one side of the road is so different from the other. High society on the left grim and grisly on the right. But somehow, this seems like the perfect place for Piper. I trip going up the steps and have to brush myself off and tuck my shirt in again. I comb my hair with my hand, take a deep breath and ring the bell. The door opens a split second later and there is the warden rising to fill the doorway. Young Mr Flanagan, he says. Yes, sir, I say. Just making myself a cup of tea. Care to join me? Uh, no, sir. I, I mean, yes, sir. I mean, I want to join you, but uh, no, sir. I, I don't like tea. The warden nods. His eyes look me up and down. After a long minute, he gives up command of the entrance and motions me in. My library is upstairs. The door is open. You go on ahead. I take an uncertain step forward and peek in at the living room. The couches and chairs look perfect, like nobody's ever sat in them. It smells like ammonia and there's opera music playing somewhere. This is not the kind of house where you can burp freely and run around in your bare feet. The warden's library is a big dark room with heavy red drapes drawn closed and floor to ceiling books. The kind of official volumes with thick indexes Natalie likes. The warden comes in after me and closes the door. He sets his teacup on the desk, settles into a huge winged desk chair and begins to work. Sit down, Mr Flanagan, he says, without looking up from his ledger. He sounds annoyed, like I flunked his first test. I sit down, only my aim is a little off and I clonk myself on the wooden arm of the chair. Ouch, I mean, ouch, sir, I say. His face gets red. His sharp eyes seem to poke into me. He leans back in his chair and opens his mouth to say something. But just as he does, someone knocks on the solid oak door. Yes, the warden calls. The latch slides open and there is Piper. Her hair is curled. Her dress is starched. She's wearing white short socks and shiny white shoes. Piper, did you want to sit in? The warden asks his big face shining. Yes, sir, she smiles sweetly. 
We'd be delighted, wouldn't we, Mr. Flanagan? The warden asks. Yes, sir. My throat closes around the words. The warden doesn't seem to notice, beaming as he is at her. Piper, you feel free to chime in now. Yes, sir. Piper smiles. She doesn't look at me. When convicts first arrive on Alcatraz, I speak with them personally. Let them know what I expect. I don't usually talk to new civilians, but Piper felt I should make an exception in your case, the warden says. Oh, swell. I'm getting the convicted felon treatment. I try to look only at the warden, try not to notice Piper, but this seems impossible. Uh, Yes, sir, I say. I don't know what you did in Santa Monica, Mr. Flanagan, but children on Alcatraz follow the rules. Exactly. Precisely. Without exception. Isn't that right, Piper? Yes, sir, she says. We're a small town here. A small town with a big jail. The track record of the convicts we have includes 79 successful escapes, 19 unsuccessful escapes, and 24 escapes that were planned but not carried out. That's before these men came to Alcatraz, of course. We've made certain there will be no escapes here. But I don't fool myself. These convicts are the very best at what they do. They have 24 hours a day, seven days a week to figure out how to get out of here. These are men who have been tried and convicted of the most heinous crimes imaginable. Terrible men with nothing but time on their hands. He waits for this information to sink in. All I can think about is how stupid this is. If the men are that dangerous, why have women and children living on the island? I know my father says that in the event of a break, the warden wants the guard cops within walking distance of the cell house. And I know that the Alcatraz apartments are cheap compared to the cost of apartments in San Francisco. Still, it seems like an incredibly stupid idea to me. Uh, Yes, sir, I say. I have a great deal of respect for your father, and since you're Cam's boy, I bet you have a lot to offer. I'm looking forward to getting to know you, but before that can happen, we have to make sure we understand each other. Uh, Yes, sir, I say. We have rules here. Laws you must obey, or you could endanger yourself and everyone else on this island. Rule number one. There's no contact with the convicts. You see them on work detail down at the dock. On occasion, they'll help a family move furniture or paint their quarters. He pulls open the curtains and there is the cell house. The little hairs on my neck stand up at the sight of it so close. But, his voice goes low and hard, they are accompanied by a guard at all times. You may not under any circumstances approach them or speak to them. Women are not not wear uh, to wear bathing suits, shorts, or any attire that is anything but completely modest. Undergarments are not to be sent out with the laundry. He turns to Piper. Cover your ears, young lady. He beckons me with his finger. 
I walk up close and he whispers, Some of these convicts have not seen a woman in ten or fifteen years. You're old enough to understand what that means, Mr. Flanagan. Uh, Yes, sir, I say, almost running back to my chair. You can never trust a con. Nobody came here for singing too loud in church. Do you know what the word conniving means? Uh, Sneaky, um, tricky, I say. That's right. Remember that, Mr. Flanagan. Conniving men with no sense of right and wrong. Oh, swell. Number two. Do not enter an area that is fenced off. Number three. No visitors unless you've made your request in writing one week prior to the visiting day. Number four, do not speak to any outsiders about what goes on here. Don't go shooting your mouth off about Al Capone. You say his name and hordes of reporters come crawling out of the woodwork, ready to write stories full of foolish lies. Dangerous lies. Know anything about Capone, Mr. Flanagan? Uh, He's a gangster from Chicago. Killed a lot of people on Valentine's Day. Al Capone was, and some people say is, the most powerful underworld figure in the country. Here, on Alcatraz, he's a number like every other con. The point of this prison is to keep these showy criminals out of the limelight. If I find out you're running your mouth about Capone, I'll ship you back to where you came from so fast it will make your head spin. Would you please, I want to say. But then I think about my dad and how hard he's working so we can stay here. The warden's eyes flicker. He seems to sense his words haven't had the desired effect. I know you're going to want to give that sister of yours a chance at school. Oh, please, sir. Don't bring her into this, I say, looking down at the carpet. I can feel the heat of his intense blue eyes watching me. Fair enough, he nods. Number five. You must walk through the metal detector upon entering and leaving the island. No dogs, cats or pets of any kind. No play guns, rope, metal pipes or anything that can be used as a weapon. No old hangers or nails or anything made of metal or glass goes out with your trash. These convicts can fashion weapons out of anything. Uh, Yes, sir, I say. The hands on my arms so keen I could pick up the radio signals with them. Now, my daughter tells me she's introduced you to the other children here. He nods to Piper. Your daughter hasn't done boo far as I can tell, she's a bald-faced liar, I want to yell. Is there anything I missed, sweetheart? Uh, The school projects? Oh, yes. Piper is a straight A student, he says, pretending to whisper. Oh, Daddy, Piper blushes. Her mother and I are so proud, but sometimes keeping track of all the projects she is going is a challenge for her. Annie and Jimmy both go to St. Bridget's, so you'll be the only other Alcatraz child attending marina school with Piper, and she often needs help carrying her projects and what not to school. We were hoping, as a favour to us, 
you might be willing to help out. Emergency alert, emergency alert. Moose Flanagan played for a sucker right before his very eyes. Uh, Yes, sir. My voice squeaks high like a rodent's. I glance sideways at Piper. The warden's smile is kind. If you have any problems at all, my door is always open. Uh, Yes, sir. That's it. Welcome to Alcatraz. You can see yourself out? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Thank you, sir, I say. Bye, Moose. See you at school tomorrow. Piper waves like she is the sweetest girl next door. For a second, I almost believe her. That's how good she is. And then I realise she is the girl next door. The girl next door to Al Capone. Chapter 7. Big for 7th grade. Monday, January 7th, 1935. Now I get to walk into a school where I don't know anyone. Correction, I don't know anyone except a piece of work named Piper. One enemy, the rest strangers. This is not good, for cripe's sake. Plus, it's mid-year, so everybody has all made friends and has everything that they already need. No one will need a friend except me. Was this how Natalie felt on the way to Esther P. Marinoff's school? Maybe some big ladies will come along and drag me inside, kicking and screaming too. Sometimes it seems easier to be Natalie. People force her to do stuff. I have to force myself. I try to remember how I would have walked into a new class at home. I guess that's the problem here. At home, I never would have thought how to walk into a stupid room. I would have just done it. I take a deep breath and shove open the door. Everyone is looking up at the teacher, including Piper. Third row, second seat. The teacher is writing on the chalkboard in perfect palm. Method handwriting. I've spot an empty seat, and I wonder if I can get away with just sitting down like I've been here all year. The teacher turns around. She's got black, black hair and a tight, white little face, as if her skin's a size too small. And you are... She asks, uh, Matthew Flanagan, but uh, everybody calls me Moose. I'm Miss Bimp, she says, looking at her roll sheet. Her pencil moves down the list. Excuse me, Mr. Flanagan, but uh, I don't see your name here. Are you certain you have the right class? Seventh grade, advanced English? Uh, yes, ma'am, I say. She squints at me. Big for seventh grade, aren't you, Mr. Flanagan? Uh, Yes, ma'am. Mrs. Bimp clears her throat. She puts her hand to her mouth and speaks behind it. This wouldn't be your second time round in seventh grade, would it? Piper laughs first, then the whole class busts up. My face burns. My ears are like two little heaters attached to my head. Uh, No, ma'am, I say. That's enough, class. All right, fine, Mr. Flanagan. Take a seat there in the back so you don't block anyone's view of the board. This week, we're continuing our unit on oral reports. I'd like you each to write an outline for a two-minute speech. Remember, beginning, middle, end. Keep it short. 
Moose, have you written outlines before? Uh, yes, ma'am, I say. Excellent. Her stiff mouth flips up. This is supposed to be a smile. It looks like it hurts. The topic for today's speech is... She writes on the board. What I did over Christmas vacation. I'll give you 15 minutes, then we'll start right here. She wraps her knuckles on my row. That just figures, doesn't it? I take out my notebook. Seems like I've hardly started scribbling ideas when Miss Bimp Boone's pens down. Listen up, Scout McKelvey, you're first. Scout has the kind of hair that grows up instead of down. He has a friendly smile and everything he does, he does quickly. I don't pay much attention to what he says, but when he walks back to his seat, I see he's got a baseball glove under his desk. Within seconds, I've dipped my pen in my inkwell. Do you play ball? I write. The note travels up the road to Scout. Even Piper passes it without comment. After Scout reads it, he turns around and smiles at me. Then his head ducks down to write his response. Southfield, it says when it comes back. After school today, we need players. Scout. His handwriting is big and wild. It takes up the whole backside. I can't believe my luck. I'm about to write, what position do you play when I see Piper walk up the aisle? She waits while Scout moves his books out of her way. Even after Scout's done moving them, she still waits like he hasn't moved them far enough. Although he clearly has. Scout pushes the last little corner in and she sails past. In front of the room, Piper still waits like she's not going to open her mouth until she has every single person's eyes on her. She doesn't have an apron on either, which wouldn't be strange except every other girl in this class does. I sang a solo for our convicts on Alcatraz. I sang Silent Night for Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, Roy Gardner and the others. There were tryouts in early December and I was given the only solo spot. We walked around the outside of the South House caroling. So I didn't actually see Capone this time, but I'm almost sure I heard him call out, sweet as a songbird. No kidding, a fat kid says. The Al Capone? Piper nods. The very same. How do you know it was him? I recognized his voice. You've gotta be kidding, another kid mutters. Moose Flanagan lives on Alcatraz too. Piper smiles at me like we're best friends. Maybe he can tell you more. What the heck was that? Take the little policewoman off Alcatraz and she runs her mouth like crazy. Capone this, Capone that. Exactly what the warden said never to do. And now, if I don't talk about Alcatraz, I'll look like a chump. And if I do, she'll tell Daddy on me. Score one for Daddy's little miss. The girl who comes after Piper is up front now. Everybody is so busy talking, no one notices. Miss Bimp wraps her pointer stick so hard she practically breaks it before people settle down. The girl's turn goes lickety-split, and so does the next guy's. I'm up now. I look out at the strange faces. My arms feel too long. I try crossing them, putting my hands in my pockets, holding one arm with the other. My pants are too tight in the waist and in the crotch too. How come I never noticed this before? 
Um, my dad is uh, the electrician on Alcatraz. I moved there, I mean here, from Santa Monica. And the most exciting thing that's uh, happened to me this vacation was my mom didn't feel like cooking because our pans were still packed. So my dad brought home a plate of roast chicken, potatoes, and cooked carrots. I pause a minute. This wasn't what I wrote in my outline. I'm going freeform now. From the uh, Sow House kitchen. It was cooked by a kidnapper, a two-time murderer, and a postal robber too. Wow, somebody says. Were you scared? No. I make a scoffing noise. Like, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard. The truth is, I was terrified. For the first time in my whole life, I skipped supper. Told my parents I had a stomach ache which has never stopped me from eating before. He could have been killed, Piper says in a stage voice. She's shaking her head as if it's a wonder I'm here to tell this story. They tried to poison you? A girl with chipmunk cheeks asks. No, but they could have. Any of us could be poisoned at any time, Piper agrees. Is that all, Mr Flanagan? Miss Bimp cuts in, tapping a pencil on the desk. Uh, yes, ma'am, I say. When I get back to my seat, I trip on a girl's foot and knock my inkwell over. Ink seeps through a crack and drips on my leg. I spend the rest of class trying to clean it up. After the bell rings, I catch up with Piper in the hall outside. I thought we weren't supposed to talk about Alcatraz, I say. Why did you then? Piper asks shifting her books to her other arm. I open my mouth to answer, but no words come out. Why did I, anyway? Because you did. I finally spit out. Because I did? Isn't that the sweetest thing? Piper smiles at me. I hurry up to keep up with her. Piper is a good six inches shorter than I am, but walks faster. How can this be? She stops and looks at my pants. I look down at myself and see a big black ink blotch the shape of Florida uncomfortably close to my fly. So, are you going to help me with my project or not? She asks. Uh, what project? Didn't I tell you? We're going to sell the Alcatraz laundry service to kids at school. You know, get your clothes cleaned by famous Alcatraz convicts Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly and Roy Gardner. We'll charge five cents a shirt. No IOUs. Money will be split four ways. Jimmy and Annie will help us put the laundry through in their family bags so they each get a cut, plus you and I. You're going to sell the Alcatraz laundry service. Why? I ask. I just told you why. Money. Piper starts walking again. Does your dad know about this? She snorts. Not hardly, she says, taking off again. Hey! I hurry after her as she ducks into a doorway. I didn't say... Get out of here, you big baboon. This is the girls' bathroom. A blonde with angry, pop-out eyes shouts. Three girls are putting on lipstick. Another is closing the stall door. All the way to my next class, I hear the sound of Piper's laugh. It plays over and over in my head. Chapter 8 Prison Guy Plays Ball Same Day 
Monday, January 7th, 1935. After school, I head for Southfield, thinking about Piper. What is it about her, anyway? There were plenty of annoying people at home. I stayed away from them. It's living on a stupid island. It's like a prison. Okay, it is a prison. There's the problem right there. It's only a half day at school, which I'm hoping my mum doesn't know, so we w- she won't wonder why I'm late. Hey, look, it's the Alcatraz guy, says a kid I recognise from my class. Who let you out? Asks another as he warms up his pitch. Uh, can't stay late or they lock the cell house door. Gotta watch out for that. Nobody's home late on Alcatraz. Nobody gets bad grades either or they chain you up, I say. So, uh, hey, another kid walks over. I heard what you said in Miss Bimps about almost getting poisoned, and I was wondering, do you eat supper with them murderers? Uh, Only snacks. Snack time is with murderers. Uh, Supper time is reserved for con men, counterfeiters, and armed robbers. Scout laughs. What about Capone? Another kid hollers. You met him yet? Uh, No, I hadn't. Haven't the pleasure of making his acquaintance. I say, holding my nose, so my voice comes out like my great aunt Elizabeth's. They all laugh now. Does your dad uh, carry a gun? Scout wants to know. Nope, I say. Does he come home with blood on his hands? Nah, I say. He washes up first. My mum makes him. I borrow Scout's glove. Just don't get any bullet holes in it or anything, Scout says as I start warming up with a kid named Stamford. Everyone seems to already know that this guy named Dell and Scout will be captains. They call us in and start picking players. They make their choices the way my dad moves cards around in his gin rummy hand. The only wild card is me. I figure I'll be last pick because no one knows how I play. But Scout picks me third on his side. Dell and Scout measure hands up the bat. Scout wins, so I head for the dugout. Scout pulls me aside. Hey, Mr Alcatraz, can you hit? He whispers. I shrug. I don't stink or anything, but um, I'm better in the field. But you can hit, right? Yeah, I can hit, I say. You're lead off. I'm second. Stanford, you're third. Meager, you're clean up. We'll see where we are after that. I pick up the bat and give it a swing. It's too light. No clobber to a bat like that and the swing is faster than I like. I get into my ready stance. My head clears. No Natalie, no mum, no Alcatraz. There's nothing but me and the ball. The ball comes at me slow. Wait for it, wait for it. I swing. The bat whistles through the air. The ball sails by. Strike one, the catcher calls. Don't think. My coach at home always said, you start thinking, you get your drawers all in a twist. I glance up to see a group of girls watching. I wonder if Piper will walk by. She has to go this way to get to the boat. I swing the bat back ready to ready position. The pitcher does his pre-pitch dance. Take your time. Turn your hips to the ball. Meet it, meet it. I watch it arc out and hold. Ball one. What an eye. I can't help sneaking a smile at Scout. But the pitcher's antsy now. 
He's ready to go. I swing my bat to ready and wait. The ball comes close, too close. I hold. Strike two. I stand up. That was a ball. It almost hit me. It didn't though, did it, prison boy? The curly-haired catcher says. It was a ball, I mutter. Doesn't this guy know the strike zone? Are we playing baseball or what? I nod to scout like he should watch the calls. He seems to understand and positions himself behind the catcher. The pitcher smiles. He wipes his hand on his shirt and sends a fastball, his best pitch yet. It comes right where I like it and I swing, but I forgot about the bat being so light. I hit it, but not solid. It's a grounder. I drop the bat and thunder towards first base. The shortstop fields and throws. The first baseman fumbles off to chase the shortstop's bad throw. I'm almost, almost, I'm on. Not pretty, but I stick. I look at the girls. They're gone. They couldn't even wait to see if I got a hit. A wave of homesickness washes over me. Scout's up now. He's a small guy. That's probably why the bat is light. It's his. He's, he hits hard though. Hard enough for me to take second and third. But then daily and meagre strike out and the next guy hits a pop-up fly. The shortstop catches with his bare left hand. Dell's team is up. What position? Scout asks. Uh, first. He shakes his head. Meager plays first. How about second? I shrug. I'm not wild about playing second. But when you're new, you're new. I borrow a glove from a kid on Dell's team and make my way to second base. First batter is pretty bad. Hold the bat like it has germs. Pitcher strikes him out. Second batter looks like he's going to be good, but who knows, because the pitcher walks him. If he did that on purpose then the guy must be really good. Third batter wallops one hard right to me. I leap left and shag it on the fly, then rip it back to first. Meager on first gets it in his glove and taps the guy as he slides back to first. Two outs. Unbelievable. My first double play ever. Not a double play combination like the famous Chicago Cubs tinker to Evers to chance, but pretty darn close. I can't wait to tell my dad. Nice, Scout calls. I try to nod like this is no big deal, but I can't get the grin off my face. Every guy on our team is looking at me and Meager. Nice going, I tell Meager. Prison guy can field them balls, Stanford says. Them gangsters taught him how to play, another guy agrees. There's nothing like a double play to make yourself a friend or two. Maybe it won't be so bad here. Not so bad at all. When it's time to go home, we're winning 3-2. Scout tells me they play every Monday. I can hardly wait till next week. I don't even care if my mum gets mad at me for coming home late. I don't care about anything except playing ball again. Chapter 9. Nice Little Church Boy Same day, Monday, January 7th, 1935. Teresa is waiting outside the door when I get back to our new place. Where have you been? We're late. Late for what? Teresa sighs long and loud, like this isn't even worth answering. 
you have a note from your mum. She hands it to me. It says, Dear Moose, I've gone to Beatrixels to get a perm. Make sure to get your dad up at six o'clock. We're going to the officers club for a party at 6.30. There's a beauty parlour here? I asked Teresa. Nah, Bea does perms in her kitchen, but there's a barbershop for the cons in the cell house. Come on. I dump my stuff inside. What are we late for? I ask. We're going to the parade grounds to meet my brother, Jimmy, Annie and Piper. Wait, wait, wait. This Jimmy guy's your brother. How come you didn't tell me you had a brother? Teresa cocks her head and looks at me cross-eyed. Because, because why? Then you'd play with him instead of me. He's my age. She nods. So why are you telling me now? Now I know you like me. I do not. Yes, you do. She nods, her whole face earnest. I can't help smiling at this. If we're meeting your brother, I need my glove. I race to my room to get my old glove for him, my new glove for me and my baseball. Ha, <laughs> Teresa says when I come back. Jimmy can't throw worth beans. We'll see about that, I say as we head back around 64 building. Then follow the curve of the hill to an open cement area big enough to park 30 cars. There are lots of girls here, cranky ones too. Girls are not happy birds. A big girl with yellow hair sits on the wood side of the sandbox and a boy huddles over something. The boy looks like Teresa, same curly black hair, same slight build. Hi, I say. I ignore the girl, Annie I guess. She has her nose sideways to her homework like she sees better out of one eye than the other. Hey, Moose, I'm Jimmy. Jimmy says. He smiles quick up at me, then hunches back over an elaborate machine made of rocks, marbles, sticks and rubber bands. What's that? I asked. It's a marble shooting machine. Want to see? Sure, I say. He fires a marble with a rubber band. It rolls under a plank and onto a miniature diving board that plunks down and hits another marble that is supposed to jump a stick, only it doesn't. Shucks, Jimmy says, his head low over his contraption again. He fiddles some more and then fires the marble again. This time it makes the jump. He grins big. Nice. You want to throw some balls? I offer him my glove. Sure. He puts the glove on and runs back, his eyes still on his marble machine. He throws the ball the complete wrong direction. I chase it down and toss it back. It hits his glove and plops out. He runs after it and throws again, this time down the side of the hill. Uh, I'll get it. I cut down the path to the terrace below, where the ball is caught in the prickly thistle of a blackberry bush. When I get back up to the parade grounds, Jimmy is at work on his machine, and Teresa has my extra glove. My turn, she says. I throw the ball easy to Teresa. She wraps her arms around it like she's hugging herself. The ball falls through her arms. She chases it down, then throws with both hands from ground level, sending the ball willy-nilly skywards. Uh, I guess baseball isn't the madam and family sport, I say under my breath. 
Teresa hands me back my glove. There's something else I haven't told you. Oh, really? What is that? I edge away from her so I can play catch on myself. My mum has to keep her feet up. She's due to have my baby soon. It isn't your baby, Jimmy calls, balancing a stick on two rocks. She has to keep her feet up, otherwise the baby might slip out all of a sudden and bump his head, Teresa says. Teresa! Jimmy looks up from his project. He groans and rolls his eyes. It depends on how long the American cord is. Teresa's little gnome face scrunches up like she's thinking hard about this. And how tall the mum is. Umbilical cord. And shut up about mum's privates, Teresa, Jimmy orders. I look for a second at Annie. Something about the way she's concentrating makes me think she's paying more attention to us than to her work. How do you do, Annie? I say in my most charming voice. Hello, Moose. She doesn't look up. You wouldn't want to play a little ball, would you? I ask. Slowly and deliberately, she folds down a corner of her book and closes it. She snatches my extra glove and walks out clear to the basketball hoop. I run up close. I don't want to embarrass her. She's only a girl, after all. I pop her one light and easy. She catches it no problem and zips me a hard fastball. Wow. I jump in the air and I wave my hands around like some kind of idiot. And then, before I can stop myself, I run up to this Annie girl and give her a big hug. No slobbering, she cries. Sorry, I say, my face hot as a furnace. But then I see a little sm smile in the corner of her mouth. So, Annie, I walk up close so we can talk and throw at the same time. Does anyone else here play? No one except the Khans. They play in the rec yard. Sometimes they hit over the one over the prison yard wall. The wall the way they play, it's an automatic out. But when a ball comes over to our side, we get to keep it. They're pretty popular around here. If the Khans don't want to hit them over, it must not happen that much, I say, catching Annie's brand of stinger, which has a little curve on it. Quite a good throw, if you ask me. They tried to hit them hard, but not hard enough to go over. Kind of tricky. How many guys she find? I ask, winding up my own stinger. Annie catches it. No problem. I have one ball. Piper has one ball. Jimmy has one. None of the little kids do. We're tossing the ball back and forth in a hard, fast rhythm that feels great. My arm is purring. The ball, my glove, my arm are all working together like grease motor parts. Annie is so good, I don't hold back. Where is Piper anyway? I can't keep myself from asking. Charm school. Charm school? That's a laugh. Is it remedial charm or what? Annie catches the ball and holds it. She walks up close enough to whisper. You got to get along with Piper, otherwise she'll make trouble for you and your dad. Can she do that? She can do anything she wants, she says, handing me back my glove, picking up her book and dusting it off. I gotta go in. Are you going to that party tonight? I ask. Everybody goes, Annie explains. She walks heavy like she weighs 200 pounds. She's sturdy but not fat. 
and she has the best throwing arm I've ever seen on a girl. Pete would never believe it. I look around for Teresa and Jimmy, but they're already inside. I toss the ball up in the air and catch it just as the four o'clock bell rings. On Alcatraz, a bell rings every hour to remind the guards to count the cons and make sure no one's escaped. I'm about to go in when I spot Piper. Well, if it isn't our very own Babe Ruth. She's being sarcastic, but to me this is the best compliment in the world. I like to play, what's the matter with that? I say, tossing the ball in the air and catching it barehanded. She looks around the parade grounds, then starts walking back to the road like I'm not the person she's looking for. Did you see me play after school? Why am I asking this? I can feel my face heat up. She snorts but doesn't answer. They teach you how to make those sounds in charm school? I'm half skipping to keep up with her and that's how far she walks. They teach you how to be a nice little church boy in Santa Monica? Oh, so now I'm a church boy. Talk about playing both sides and down the middle too. You won't help with the laundry service because you don't want to get in trouble. How do you spell Boy Scout? I just don't feel like doing it. Right. I'll bet you don't feel like doing anything against the warden's rules. How do you know? She makes a strangled little sound in her throat and pulls open her front door. Why do you need me for this laundry plan of yours anyway? Why do you care? I can't put 80 shirts through in my laundry bag now, can I? Annie and Jimmy will help, but that's not enough. How do you know I won't tell your dad? She rolls her eyes like this question is too stupid to bother answering and slams the door in my face. Chapter 10. Not ready. Same day, Monday, January 7th, 1935. Back home, I check the clock. Quarter to five. Still not time to wake my dad. On my bed, I spread out two double ham sandwiches, a bowl of potato salad and the tail end of a salami and crack open my book. I've just cha finished chapter 11 when I hear the knock. Somewhere in the back of my head, the knocking has been going on for some time. I run through the living room. Before I even open the door, I know who it is by the whistling, wheezing, breathing. Mrs. Kikoni, I say, staring out at the big woman framed against the green sea in the gloomy grey dusk. You're losing your hearing, Mills. I've been banging on this door for five whole minutes. Mrs. Kikoni hisses between breaths. You folks got a call. Mrs. Kikoni is fat around the middle, with arms as big as thighs and bosoms like two jiggling watermelons. She is hot and out of breath from the walk up the stairs, but Mrs. Kikoni is the one who answers the phone because it's right outside her door. Given her size and her difficulty with stairs, She seems the wrong person to live in the apartment next to the phone, but nobody asked me. Go on ahead, she wheezes, backing her big self against the wall so I can squeeze by. I think about getting my dad, but he's been so tired I don't have the heart to wake him early. There probably isn't time to get my mum, 
and she won't go to and she won't want to go outside with all that stinking permanent goop on her hair. At the foot of the stairs, I spot the receiver hanging down. Hello, this this is uh, Matthew Flanagan. I say, Matthew, you are the more the male voice hesitates. Uh, Moose, sir, people call me uh, Moose Flanagan. Oh, yes, Moose. We met yesterday. This is Mr. Purdy, the headmaster at the Esther P. Marinoff School, where your sister Natalie is enrolled. Is your mum or dad available? Uh, not right now, sir. Mr. Purdy sighs. All right, then. You need to give them a message. Natalie is not settling in as we had hoped. Tell them I'm so very, very sorry. But as I explained to your mom, we were only taking her on a trial basis. They need to come and pick her up today, uh, tonight. Tonight? Is she uh, okay? I ask. Oh, yes, yes. She's fine, son. Perfectly fine. She's just not ready for the program we have here. That is all. Just not ready, he says. Tell your mom and dad they must pick her up tonight. Can you do that for me, son? Natalie isn't ready, I ask. She's only been there one day. Thirty-six hours. Yes, yes, I know. These things become clear rather quickly, I'm afraid. Have your parents call me if they have any questions. Otherwise, expect them this evening. The phone clicks in my ear and the questions flood my brain. Why? What does she do? What happened? How could they know anything about Natalie in one day? They didn't even try. I want to go back to Santa Monica, but not this way. Not if it means giving this news to my mum. My feet feel suddenly too heavy. The stairs too steep. I push open our door. My mum is back. Her dark hair is permed flat with one wiggly curl across her forehead. She's wearing a dress I've never seen before. How do I look? She whirls around, her whole face radiant. I get a big whiff of sour perm and heavy perfume smell. I open my mouth, but no words come out. I got my hair done. Didn't you see my note? Mum, my words are frozen in my chest. It's beautiful. My voice cracks. My mum's eyes register that something is wrong. Moose? She touches my shoulder. It was hard to leave her there. Of course it was. What did we expect? But this is her chance, son. She's... She's going to get better, I know. I feel it right here, she pats her heart. I can't look at her. Time to wait, Dad, I mutter. The bed creaks when I sit down in my parents' dark room, but my dad doesn't stir. His hair seems to have slipped back on his head. It isn't growing thick and full across his forehead the way mine does. His bald spot, which used to be no bigger than a quarter, is now the size of a baseball. The creases in his face look deeper too. I jiggle his arm. Dad, I say, we have to go pick up Natalie. Mr. Purdy called. They don't want her at the Esther P. Marinoff. She can't stay there, not even tonight. My father opens his eyes. He looks as if he's just stepped on a nail. Come again, he says. By the time I finish explaining the second time, he's sitting up in bed. Does your mum know? I shake my head takes a deep breath and lets it out with a whistle. His eyes focus on a worn spot on the rug. 
Okay, son. I'll take it from here.